Welcome to Clean Integration, a Saluna podcast. Bitcoin, crypto, and batchable computing, could they be the keys to scaling the renewable sector? I sit down with experts to discuss the path to renewables and making them the primary and most affordable energy source. I'm John Belazare, CEO of Saluna, and your host. The U.S. passed the largest climate bill in American history this summer, the Inflation Reduction Act. With new energy resources will come new challenges for our already struggling grid. Now more than ever, innovations in AI and machine learning are so important for stabilizing the grid. Today, I'm talking to Sean Murphy, the CEO and co-founder of Pink Things, Inc., a software platform for high-frequency time series data bringing AI and machine learning to some of the largest utilities in the United States. Pink Things is backed by GE Ventures and is also spearheading the Department of Energy's National Infrastructure for AI on the GRID initiative. Previously, Sean built Full Stack Data Science, a consulting firm that focused on bringing AI, machine learning, and data science into the enterprise space, specifically focused on government, finance, consumer, education, and healthcare. He also spent over a decade as a senior scientist at Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory. With such a wide breadth and depth of experience, we're excited to speak to Sean today to learn more about his innovative platform. Sean, welcome to the show. Excellent. I'm really glad to be here. And it is an incredibly exciting time for uh, the energy transition for kind of the future. Um, the money that the government's spending and investing is a big deal, and it's going to move the needle. You're going to see, you know, despite what whatever the rest of the economy is doing, um, energy is heating up. And I think that's very good news for innovation. Oh, that's fantastic. What did you think? What did you think when you heard the bill was passed? I, oh, it's, it's, it's an excellent question. Um, it brings focus, it brings the spotlight, it brings the conversation, societal conversation to this issue. Hmm. Um, and I think it's actually very important because I know there's a lot of funding available for kind of sexy renewable technologies, batteries and wind and solar, um, and, and even a little some for fusion, which is great. Hmm. But what isn't really discussed, and I think some of the recent legislature, uh, legislation that's been passed is trying to sort of direct and address is when you add these new technologies to our existing grid, it's not just you plug them in and away we go, it just works. So we need to reinforce the existing infrastructure because of these re, these new renewables, these new ideas that are coming to the grid that sort of violate a lot of the assumptions and underlying um, design decisions that were foundational to the original grid. So we're taking an old technology, a legacy grid, and we're adding, we're changing the requirements. And if anyone's in software, you know, halfway through a project, if you start changing the requirements, usually things go very badly. So if we're going to do this and we're going to add the renewables, we're going to add inverter-based resources, we need to make sure that we don't skimp on the legacy grid, the existing infrastructure. So we harden that to make sure that it can handle these new changing loads. Yeah, we're going to get into that. And obviously, we're we're big 
uh, proponent of that as well, you know, retrofitting the grid with more flexibility and res and resilience to uh, energy intermittency. I, I want to ask you more about yourself, though. How did you get into data science? How, how did you, when did you know you, you would be a data scientist? Oh, that's an excellent question. Uh, so I was a, my background, I did, I was actually pre-med, um, bailed on med school, and I have like degrees in math and electrical engineering. And then um, I did my grad work at Hopkins in biomedical engineering. And I just, I worked with data. I was computational. I have a numerical background. Um, in, in, in undergrad, I realized like even, you know, all of the sciences were really just math and all of that was computers. It was all simulation. It was all numerical analysis. And so at Hopkins, a lot of the work that I did, um, everything was simulated, everything was algorithm, algorithm development, everything was processing and understanding data. So I saw the kind of the, the sea change um, from the East Coast. Um, I, I kind of recognized that the world was turning to data, um, worked on a lot of early sort of machine learning approaches for anomaly detection and time series. Hmm. Um, at this point, like, almost 20 years ago, which I hate to say because now I sound old, um, <laughs> but it's, you know, teaching machines and computers to learn from data makes a whole lot of sense. Um, mm. So now it's just, it's slowly rippling out and industry after industry after industry are adopting those ideas and those techniques. So it, it sounds like it was a natural progression. The more you spent time with data and understood how valuable it can be to solve problems or get insights, you became more interested in the space and then kept with it. Absolutely. And the the fun part is that, right, what there there's a famous quote, um, you cannot improve what you cannot measure, yeah. or you cannot improve what you cannot quantify. And I think, you know, that applies obviously with machine learning and et cetera, but it also it implies to the individual level, if you are trying to improve as an athlete, as an artist, as a student, it's the same, it's the same idea. We need these quantified metrics by which we benchmark and measure how we're doing mm -hmm. on a day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week basis. So yeah, data, data is, is our um, kind of, it's our record of our accomplishment to some extent. Mm. So it's critical. And more data is becoming increasingly available to us, right? It's just exploding in the world. And and, and that is, I, I think that is one of the reasons why we we keep seeing sort of economic, um, positive economic outcomes, because there is technological innovation that's happening, and it's allowing us to do more with the same amount of resources. Right. Um, and, and like, just as software was supposed to eat the world, it's now software being trained on data that will eat the original software. So yeah. it's, it's inevitable. So I'd like to talk about your, your current venture and focus. I mean, it's, I think it's very exciting using data and software to create a more predictive grid. In fact, you call it predictive grid software. How does it work and what sorts of problems can it solve for our current grid system? Yeah, so the predictive grid, and I got to say, we're my company is filled with really brilliant 
computer scientists and data scientists. Yeah. We don't have any, anyone in marketing or branding. So <laughs> I apologize for the names. And if you go to our website, it's terrible. I built it. So you have my, it's a dumpster fire. You have my apologies. <laughs> but it, it's really what we offer is we offer a cloud-based time series data platform. And it's really designed to manage, analyze, and apply machine learning to time series data. And so, and when I say time series, just to be clear, because there's, you know, different people, it means different things. Mm -hmm. I come from a physical sciences, physical engineering background. Time series is always, I have a timestamp and I have a measurement and that's a measurement of typically the physical world. So it's a floating point number and it's describing the behavior of some sort of asset. And with a lot of sensing, um, you know, the time series data is regularly spaced. It happens like once a second or once every nanosecond. Um, so we built a platform that was designed to handle just unheard of amounts of time series data. So it's a distributed computing system. It's horizontally scalable. It was built that way from day zero mm. um, because we looked at the grid and we looked at the distribution system and we said, hey, if we, or preferably someone else, adds higher frequency sensing to the distribution system, we are looking at tens or hundreds of thousands of high frequency sensing that's going to, that's sampling the behavior of the grid at 60 or 120 or 240 samples per second per channel. And we're going to have 100,000 of those sensors, and we need to be able to ingest that, to store that, to query that, to analyze it, mm -hmm. and to really ultimately create value from that data to be able to better manage the grid. Um, and so that kind of drove the design requirements for the platform, and you know, it, it took some time, um, but I'm, I'm very proud because we've been Basically, we've been ingesting and processing uh, transmission systems worth of data since 2019, um, millions of measurements per second per customer, and you know our reliability record's phenomenal. And we keep you know we keep making the platform faster and faster and faster, um, so that you know we're processing tens of millions of measurements per second per node. Um, so our performance, our analytical capabilities, they just keep getting better and better and better. Hmm. Um, and, and it's kind of fun because when you look at some of the other folks in this space, you know, their, per, their, their view of time series involves like it's a timestamp and a tweet and it's a timestamp and an image. And for us, we are hyper -fo focused on kind of timestamped quantitative measurements of physical systems. And that allows us to really just add an insane level of optimization and, and get speed and scale that is pretty much unheard of. So it's, it's, been, it's been really fun because when I was at Hopkins, you know, we had data sets where we had a polysomnographic study, which is really, it's a sleep study. Mm -hmm. So someone goes in, they get hooked up to an EKG and EOG and EMG and all sorts of uh, physiological signal recording. 
and they sleep for eight, 10, 12 hours. And so you have 12 hours of, you know, each signal is a thousand Hertz. It's a thousand samples per second. Hmm. And you have, you have 10,000 of those patients. And like back in 2003, I had to figure out how to process all of that data. Um, and I really wish I had my platform back then hmm. because the tooling for time series data is, uh, it, it's not fantastic. It's, it's one of these things that's sort of been left behind. Hmm. So we've been trying to fix that. So if I were to use the analogy that you just went through here, the sleep study and the data points and, and, and pieces of data you're collecting from the individual that's asleep that to, to try to understand what's happening with them, what's the equivalent for the grid and, and what is the predictive software doing for the grid? Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, Kind of the equivalent or the analogy for the grid is each patient would be an asset that could be a transformer, it could be a statcom, it could be a transmission line, it could be a cap bank, it could be mm -hmm. uh, a recloser, basically any piece of smart, like a smart asset that's already deployed on the grid. Mm -hmm. And we want to understand the behavior of that piece of, of, of equipment. We want to understand how the grid is doing its fundamental job. And that is for a transmission system, it's transmitting electrical power. And we wanna do that reliably, we wanna do that resiliently, and we wanna do that as efficiently as possible. Because if I can decrease the waste from 7% to 6% or 5%, that's a tremendous amount of greenhouse gas savings. Hmm. Interesting. And how have utilities uh, responded to your software so far? Have they noticed any changes in their, have you noticed any change to their approach to renewable energy using the software or any other, in, any insights you can share with us here? Yeah, it's actually, it's actually fascinating, um, right? Utilities are regulated monopolies. Um, they, the incentive structure for a typical IOU is a very complex beast. Right. Um, there's a lot of their regulatory requirements. There's a very complex set of rules that they have to follow that they're trying to optimize. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times their behavior doesn't look, you know, just from a layman's perspective from the outside, it looks a little bit like they don't care or they're not reacting to incentives um, as one would expect. And so in some ways they have lagged in technology of adoption. Um, and in the case for us, it's, it's actually crazy fun because if you compare the predictive grid to some of the legacy historians that are typically, you know, they've been, they've been deployed for years at some of these utilities that we work with, like, it's like going from the stone age to the Jetsons um, because the simple, like one of our first customers, they were using um, a historian that's kind of the 800 pound industry gorilla. Um, and to, to basically to sell our platform, what we did is we had uh, one of the engineers do a, a screen recording and they recorded using the legacy historian. They said, hey, I want to query this data stream and they want to retrieve that data. And they hit record and then they went to lunch and they came back and like 35 minutes later, it finished. And with our platform, that 
query for data was returned in about 100 milliseconds, so faster than really the human eye could register. Hmm. So basically instantaneous. And when you go from having data that's basically you just can't get access to, so you don't use it, to having data at your fingertips, mm -hmm. it starts to transform everything that you do. Oh, there's an outage. Let's see if we can quickly determine where that outage is. Boop, 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 done. Okay, we know where the outage is. So now all of a sudden, well, that was easy. Now my response time, which if I'm a utility, my response time is critical to events. It's something I'm measured on. And so now my response time's dropped. Like, this is amazing. Let's do more. Mm -hmm. Now let's start automating the localization of those events so that we can respond even faster. And then as we keep going along that path, it's like, forget about detecting the event. Let's predict that the event's going to happen so that it never happens in the first place. I see. And so there's this kind of crawl, walk, run, fly sort of pathway that these utilities go through. I see. And like the first part is really just, oh my gosh, look at all of this data. Look at all of the things that are happening on this grid that we didn't know about. Got it. So if I if I play that back, standing in the shoes of a utility, then my relationship with ping things kind of goes something like this. What do you guys do? Hey, we can help you, <laughs> you know, go to the moon with the grid kind of thing. And because they're a utility, they, they have to take it slowly. Well, let's just see what visualization of data, what data can you sort of help me see. So first you jack in and, and connect to all the smart devices. And now you start pulling data into a, I imagine it's a lake of some kind. And now you're able to see everything that's happening. And you're like, holy smokes, man, that transformer gets really red a lot. <laughs> hmm. I didn't know that this happens when that happens. And just having that information starts to change your whole perspective on what was before a fairly opaque view of of your operation, right? And now that you now that I have that view, I wonder if I can, you know, optimize this piece or that piece because, you know, if I don't, I could have some failures and now I can start to even prevent those failures. And then I, I eventually evolve to a point where I'm actually asking the system to predict for me where I should go spend my time and use that to prevent things from happening or to optimize resources, you know, and the usage of those resources. Does it go something like that? That is exactly right. And I, I'm glad we're going to have a recording of this because I want to reuse that text. Um, that's fantastic. That's a great description. And the best part is hmm. usually with, with these types of large physical systems, you know, we'd love to, we'd love to monitor them more, but there are no sensors. Right. And so now we have to deploy sensors and, and believe me, deploying a sensor at a utility is really hard Right. because typically I have to de-energize a line or de-energize an asset. And to right. do that, I need to schedule that six months ahead of time. And it's a very, it's a complex problem, but the, the crazy, almost unbelievable part is that at least on the transmission system, there are hundreds of thousands of sensors that have been deployed for years that are turned off. Right. So they're literally, we have an incredibly smart grid that's dark because we haven't turned on the sensing. Right. Because right, right. it has no if place we to turned go. all the, Is that right? 
exactly. The data has if if we turned on the sensors, all of their historians, all of their data systems would melt down. I see. Got it. So interesting. I want to shift to talking about another aspect of your company that's not software. It's uh, it's community. And it seems like, you know, one of the main pillars of Pink Things is building a community where engineers, analysts, uh, other stakeholders can exchange expertise, especially if you're, you know, dealing with, you know, these government organizations, these utilities that aren't used to dealing with data, right? They don't, they, they haven't spent you know, 20 years like yourself, living and breathing it and getting control over it. And so it looks like your group hosts training and hackathons. And you've uh, previously, you did this before where you built a whole community of like 10,000 plus uh, data practitioners. I guess what led you to realize that community was important and knowledge sharing was important in in, in the work that you do at Pink Things? Yeah, absolutely. And this is, I, I think there's, um, it's an ideological, a philosophical issue mm-hmm. um so you can right compare like opposite ends of the spectrum one is you can build these silos right where you erect or towers where you have these these walls and you do your thing and you do it very well and it's a very it's like you don't want to play well with others and you want to protect everything you have and then the other mentality is sort of eh, i want to build something as horizontal layers so for for Bing things, we want to make working with time series data at any scale easy and simple and fast. And so I don't care who makes the sensor. I don't care who made the smart asset. I don't care whose grid it is. I just want to enable the use and value creation from all of that time series data. And so mm-hmm. I'm a horizontal layer. Please build on top of me. We'll build some stuff. Third parties will build other stuff. Customers will build even more stuff. And so I think one of the issues that's existed in the utility space is a lot of utilities are built, they're full of silos. You know, they'll have sensors that monitor the grid. And even though those, those sensors might be installed next to each other, the data flows into a separate system. It's siloed. You can never fuse that data. It, it just... And, and those groups don't communicate and everything's built as these kind of silos. And I don't think that's nearly as effective. Hmm. You don't get innovation happening at the same clip when you have more open data sharing, collaboration, cross-pollination. Uh, it just works better, but it is a it is a fundamental cultural shift. Yeah, that's so interesting. And so by creating community, you were able to infuse that cultural shift, right? Um, you know, an educated customer is the best customer, right? So if you have communities where customers can begin to educate themselves and also people learn from a platform like this, I can imagine that that could be very powerful for the growth and success of the business as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, um, when I've thought about this, and, and I think this permeates like literally everything from industries, government, countries to like individual, like personal life paths it's it's one of two mentalities you either Mm -hmm. are fighting over a fixed resource i'm i'm trying to like i will stab you in the back to get a slightly larger piece of the pie or you believe like i'm gonna grow the pie so i don't care how big your slice is because i'm making the whole pizza bigger very interesting and like 
we believe, and maybe this is naive, but I don't know, force of will, we've been making it work, that we can grow the pie. And I think the utility industry for a long time has been sort of a folks fighting over what they perceive to be a fixed pie. Interesting. What's the role of uh, open source data? I noticed that that's a big part of your approach and platform. Why is that a part of it? I, I, I thought you were going after the the sensors on the resources. Yeah. So, um, and and actually, I would say being able to share data, mm. like a lot of times when you work with utilities, right? Their data is protected. It's ah, okay. considered confidential, right? And and that creates a lot of different encumbrances. Um, but even the utilities, even though it's their data, oftentimes utilities they want to work with this utility or this other utility, or they want to work with the university or they want to work with this think tank or consultancy and the ability to share data very quickly and easily with the people that they choose I see. is incredibly needed because right now, um, when we first got started, if you wanted a year of data from a utility, it might take three years to gain access to it. Wow because you had to go through NDAs and the legal right, department, right. and then you had to export that data from some ancient data system. Right. And then, it's not designed oh my gosh. It. Yeah. No, it was, it was, it was impossible. So you couldn't, yeah. you couldn't collaborate easily. And then we also think um, through one of our government projects, we've deployed a number of sensors on the grid and those are our sensors and we stream them into Kind of an open cloud-based version of our platform mm -hmm. and we make that data accessible so because we own the sensors and we've deployed the sensors like we stream that data and we make that data accessible to, to anyone um so i think there's a place for open data in this industry i think that actually even more important is the rapid ability to share the data because for critical infrastructure cybersecurity is always going to be an issue. Right. But if you lock data down so much that you can't work together, like you've already lost. Yeah. You can't solve problems, right? Like, you know, exactly. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. You're going backwards. Now you have more data, but it's all closed. <laughs> so you can't gain, gain any insights from it. Exactly. There was a similar experience prior to running this company. I was in insurance space and they had a similar problem they were trying to find a way to understand claim experience right you know how do you underwrite a driver in a car or something along those lines and what they realized is that if they just looked at their own data they weren't getting their own loss experience they weren't getting a clear enough picture to build repeatable products and strong underwriting around it and a host of companies propped up to sort of help them combine data from other companies. And then eventually they built consortiums where they would actually merge all of their, their data and contribute it to one giant database, anonymized. And then they would subscribe to that integrated data view so that they can build proprietary products around it or, or proprietary underwriting approaches. But it was very interesting how the industry got together and you know, opened up the platform for data, but it took them a long time because, you know, everybody believes their data is, <laughs> you know, special sauce, but the growth of the industry that followed that was staggering. The, the their ability to, to uh, enhance services and, you know, better pricing in the market, et cetera, has been greatly enhanced by 
not keeping their data to themselves and sharing it. Absolutely. And I think you, I think it's very safe to say that, you know, when that happens, when more data becomes available, when collaboration becomes easier, the rate of innovation accelerates. And the, the thing that I find, actually, this is a great analogy. So mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's worth sharing. If you go back to like 20 years ago, 25 years ago, and you say, hey, I'm going to do a road trip. Mm -hmm. You go out to your car, you pull that map that's folded in the glove box mm -hmm. and you unfold it. You probably tear it in a couple new places and then you flip it over and you find the, you know, in the index, you're like my starting points in a seven and my ending point based on address is like G nine. And you flip the map over and you kind of have to like chart that out. And that was just how you did it. Going someplace new you had to write out instructions on paper. And if you lost those instructions, you were pretty much out of luck. Um, and now what do you do? Like, you know, you, you just look at your smartphone and heck you can say, you can talk to it, mm -hmm. give it the address. And because it has unlimited access to basically satellite data, right. it has access to the road topology. It has access to weather and other kind of construction data, right. all of a sudden, instead of unfolding this map, I get real-time navigation basically for free. Well, yeah. not quite for free, you know, they're collecting my data, but that's unbelievable. And, you know, if you said, hey, you know, I'm gonna make mapping data and, and uh, road data and construction data, I'm gonna make it for free, mm -hmm. people, might have jumped on the whole, oh yeah, the navigation's gonna get cheaper. But the thing that's incredible and the thing that people often miss is that, yes, Google Maps is great, Apple Maps, sure, like these are fantastic technologies, but what, what happens, what's really incredible, and this is the innovation you can't see from back there, is that, well, what about Uber? Hmm. What about, um, Instacart, what about right. Waze? What about all of these other applications that now are built on top of that foundation? 25 years ago, no one was 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 thinking like, oh, you know, I'm gonna have an app and I'm gonna, it's gonna route me and to a car that it's actually not a professional car, it's some random person's car, and they're gonna drive me to from point A to point B, and it's gonna be cheaper than a taxi. Right. But that capability was only enabled by all of this open and accessible data. I see. Yeah, no, I, I share the fascination with how incredible data can be to reshaping our experiences and creating whole new services that can enhance uh, the world, really. And it's just been amazing how quickly it's happened the more we've we've made data liquid to some extent, right? Where it can move around and be combined with other things and create these oceans of possibility, if you will. Yes. And bringing that back to the utility space, the reason I'm so excited is they are just like, we're, we're scratching the surface of right. the tip of the iceberg. And all of that truly transformational change, we still can't see because we're taking those first baby steps, but um, like we can't picture what the grid's gonna be like in five or 10 years. 
except for the fact that it will there will be stuff that comes at us sideways, new capabilities and new services and new offerings that we just never saw coming. And and I mean that in a very positive way. Yeah, no, I I 100% agree. I mean, if you if we can make the grid smarter, we'll have a smarter grid, right? If we if we can find ways to remove blind spots, everything from weather to you know, usage of the energy on the grid at different pockets, we can better optimize the resources that are on the grid to service those different scenarios. The limit is our imagination, <laughs> really, where this can go. So it's very exciting what you're doing as well. Speaking of, you know, excitement and entrepreneurship, you're an entrepreneur, I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, I, I liken entrepreneurship to, you know, setting a goal to run from one end of a field to another end of a field where there's a tree you want to, you want to, uh, you want to get to, and then you start running and then all of a sudden somebody hits you on the kneecaps with a baseball bat (laughs) and they just appear out of the blue and you still got to get all the way to the other side of the, of the, of the field. You've founded two companies. Uh, one was a consulting firm around data science, ping things. You know, what advice would you give to entrepreneurs? What are those baseball bat hits to the kneecap that you've experienced that would provide insights for people who are also trying to do disruptive and innovative things like ping things. Um, ooh, actually, this is my fourth company. Um, so well, Frank, and, you got to have a lot more than <laughs> right. So yeah. I would, man, the advice I would give. Yeah. Um, number one rule. Like, you know, if you're sitting with a young new entrepreneur. Okay, so number one rule of startup club is just don't die. <laughs> Like, do not die. Like, staying alive. Maybe I should put it more. Stay alive. Yeah. Right? Never run out of cash. Cash is king. Mm-hmm. Do not die. Mm-hmm. And that, like, that rule right there will go a very long way. Yeah. Um, but I, I think the, oh, I think the other thing that I would tell them, and I would sit, the, I would sit them down, and I would, I would say, look, this is hard. It's, it's brutal. There are going to be emotional ups and downs, the likes of which you've never really experienced before. Mm. Um, Like, like you mentioned someone coming out of nowhere and just bashing in your knees. (laughs) Um, But yes, that's going to happen sometimes on a daily basis. Right. And you like, you know, you go back to rule number one, don't die, stay alive. Yeah. And it's also, the other thing is I had this, I kind of come from a, uh, like both my my dad and my mom were relatively poor growing up. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. My dad was like gifted, like he, pretty smart guy, and he through some some sort of good fortune, kind of got into the middle class. Um, but like right when you grow up poor, when they did, you have the scarcity mentality, um, and you have a model of the world, which I'll say isn't necessarily. Uh, fantastically useful for an entrepreneur. Um, and, you know, I went in to kind of start a plan and I was like, oh, this is a meritocracy. You know, it doesn't matter where I'm from. It just matters what I can accomplish. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's kind of true, but cash is king and access to capital is not a meritocracy. Right. Access Access to capital is a, you know, it's a socioeconomic game. Hmm. It is a, there are very strong network effects. Yep. 
there are, you find, you see lots of companies where you're just scratching your head. How did anyone fund them? Right. Um, and so the, I think the second thing I would tell them is like another pretty basic rule after first don't die, like life's not fair. And you know, it, it kind of flows back into rule number one, just don't die. And if you keep plugging away at, at some point, you will be able to access capital. Um, but it, you know, your the probability of you raising a series A is infinitely higher when your dad's a VC. Right. And effects, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you know, you see all sorts of well known examples of that. Yeah. Like Theranos. Yeah, exactly. Right. Interesting. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh the role of AI and the grid for a second. And I want to put it in the backdrop of, you know, we've got, we've just got this inflation reduction act. Um, that's clearly incredibly compelling. You're talking about, uh, approaching $370 billion of, of, of investment into, uh, clean energy and, uh, clean energy incentives. That's going to drive much more investment in the space. So suddenly the grid is just going to see a whole, new growth in generation and new growth in generation intermittent generation has all sorts of problems associated with it as well as advantages how can ai help there it's it, it's going to create stability issues with the grid what can ai do this is a fantastic question um let me go off on a slight tangent to then hook back into the question okay. um the original grid right, is a physics-based system. There are some giant generation facilities, like a hydroelectric dam. Water rushes through, it spins large hunks of metal, and generators turn. And we have a 60 hertz alternating current power system because there are giant hunks of metal that are spinning around and around and around and they're generating the electricity and the power. And I can, I have equations that tell me exactly how that system is going to work, Mm -hmm. how those electrons are going to flow and how I'm going to be able to deliver power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we're ripping all of that out. And instead, what are we doing? We're taking that one giant generation system, that source, that hydroelectric or that coal fire plant or that nuclear uh, reactor, and we're replacing each one of those with all of these small little like solar farms and rooftop solar and wind farms and and all of those devices don't generate power, typically by spinning hunks of metal. Right. And that power then has to be adapted to the grid and instead of one source there's now a thousand different sources and they all have to be coordinated so the complexity of the system has increased exponentially we've basically gone from analog generation to a silicon generation and we're then trying to map that back to a legacy grid that wants the old style generation because those are the requirements under which it was built So when you have a physics-based system, which is governed by reasonable equations, you can build models, you can solve those simulations, and you can understand how the system behaves. Mm -hmm. When the complexity goes up 
like exponentially and each individual generating power generating device is actually controlled by a computer. It's a black box and it behaves in a way that is not determined by any physics we understand. Hmm. The only way you can monitor and control that grid is through data. Because the physics don't work anymore, you can't have a, an equation that tells you exactly how that uber complicated system is going to behave. So I would posit that without data, we're not going to be able to run this new grid. We have a legacy grid sandwich, and on one side is silicon-based generation, and on the other side is this complex new silicon consumption, like electrified transport and electrified industry. Um, and the complexity is skyrocketing. And the only way you can deal with that is with data. And using ML, training AI algorithms to respond to that data is really the only way you can work with data at that scale and at the needed velocity. So I would say that it's not AI and data are going to make the grid we want to build possible. Got it. That's a great. Uh, that's a great way to show the di the the difference, right? The dichotomy between the legacy and the new. I like this this uh, physics versus silicon. It's super cool. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and it's important because right, renewables they're great. They're this you know we're getting energy from the sun and there's no carbon. This is fantastic. Um, but there are like nothing is just all pluses. There are pluses and minuses. Yeah. And there are, you know, the downsides to these, you know, to say solar, besides where it's sourced in the rare earth metals and et cetera, the other, like the downside is, well, how does it perturb the existing infrastructure? Can we manage and control this and reliably supply, you know, a society, a civilization that's built on 24 seven access to electric power? Yeah, exactly. And going through this incredible transition where a good part of our economy will be elect become electrified and the role that that plays on something that we just sort of took for granted, right? The grid is becoming more a vital part of our lives to some extent. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, from an engineering perspective, like um, there are, you know, there it's these are all trade-offs and there are... You know, there's a lot of like, there are, there are pluses and minuses and we are very focused on carbon footprint. We are very focused on clean energy it, and those things are great, but there are, you know, getting energy from this fluid, this oil that has a tremendous en energy density is very powerful and it's worked very well. And we're trying to push past that and ultimately we will, but there are going to be growing pains in that process that I think, unfortunately, really haven't gotten enough press. Got it. Fantastic. Well, this has been a great uh, introduction to the role of AI and data and um, data science to the grid's future. I want to shift to our lightning round here where I ask you a series of rapid fire questions Sean, so uh, I'll jump right in. The first question I had for you is, what is your biggest concern about the current grid and what is your biggest hope? I, I, 
my largest concern is that we're going to have a catastrophic failure. Um, we're going to witness an event where a good, a large region is without power for days or longer. Hmm. That's, I, th I think that's my biggest fear, right? We do yep. not want that to happen. Yep. It is trillions in economic loss. Right. People die. What's your biggest hope? Um, oh, my biggest hope and something I, I'm, I'm a, I've always been um, the cleanest, best energy source we could ever have, uh, fusion. If, you oh. know, there's a lot of excitement in the nuclear fusion space. Right. It solves all the, it solves all of the problems. Yeah. All of the problems, right? Because yeah. now we're going to build, you know, large fusion reactors that power cities. The old grid works great. Infrastructure doesn't really have to change that much. Right. And, you know, in terms of the fuel, like we don't run into that rare earth metal sourcing problem. Um, yeah, no, I mean, nuclear fusion is the holy grail. Whatever country gets there first is going to win. Awesome. Uh, another question is is around books. What's your favorite book uh, around data science and perhaps data science in its relationship to energy? Oh, man, actually, I don't, <laughs> I don't have any recommendations. Um, what do you read, by the way? Let's see. I read a lot of nonfiction on, um, like, since the pandemic started, I've been on a giant healthcare binge. Oh, wow. Um, yep. My, uh, one of the, I spent a couple of years at Hopkins. I built simulations of how respiratory pathogens would propagate in large populations of people yeah. and how various prophylactic measures would impact the spread of those pathogens. So, yeah. like, COVID has been a, uh, you know, watching one of my simulations come to life. Interesting. So wow. I've, I've really been, uh, I kind of went back to my roots to some extent and just been reading up a lot about epidemiology and virology um, and just the healthcare system as a whole. Give so us, that's. Give us one of those, one of those books. Oh, I, oh my gosh. Um, there's, there's a really interesting read uh, about Plum Island. Mm -hmm. which is an island just off Long Island that, you know, this book, Lab 257, um, looks at if you have a lab and you have a number of dangerous pathogens in it and that lab is open for long enough, you're going to have un unintended leaks and pathogen releases. And, you know, the, the book posits a number of, of coincidences that you know, will never be proven, um, but are really fascinating. Just, you know, one of the, one of the guys theories is that, uh, Lyme disease right. actually was a pathogen release from this lab. Oh, I was, I was just, I'm just about to say, was this, this sounds like the, 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 the lab, I mean the, uh, Lyme disease. <laughs> I know yeah. about it because I've had Lyme disease a couple of times and a good friend of mine daughter went through a tough time with it. And he, he told me the whole story about that. So what was the name of the book? Lab 257? Lab 257. And it's just, hmm. we'll have to I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting, um, especially yeah. from the perspective of what, you know, the world, the globe has been going through right. for the last two plus years. What's your biggest prediction for uh, this coming year? We're recording in 2022, just tail end of the summer here, rest of the year. What, what's your, what's your biggest hope or prediction for the year? <sighs> oh my gosh. Um, Something you'd love, you'd love to see come true. Another way to ask the question. <laughs> oh, that's okay. So I would like to see the development of an effective antiviral against SARS-CoV-2. 
Hmm. I would like, that would be, I think, you know, when you talk to people about this pandemic ending, um, for, you know, for some people, there never was a pandemic for others. They're, you know, still hiding away. Um, you have long haulers who are varying degrees of crippled. Um, and then everyone else who some are getting sick, some are not. I think if we want this all to go away, it's an effective antiviral that you get sick and you take it and it's effective. It causes SARS-CoV-2 to, you know, basically stop reproducing and your body clears it. So that is my hope. Um, it's a hope. It's, I'm not optimistic. Got it. Well, thanks for that, Sean. Thanks again for coming on the show and sharing with us the new entrepreneurial journey that you're on. Very exciting. And, you know, definitely kindred kindred spirits. We want to see the grid transform and evolve as the world evolves around this transition. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for, for the conversation today. I definitely enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. You can find more information on what you've heard today in our show notes. To join our growing community, connect with us on LinkedIn by searching for Saluna and following our corporate page. Or tag us on Twitter. We're at Saluna Holdings. To learn more about Saluna and our innovative projects, visit our website at salunacomputing.com and visit our blog, Clean Integration on Medium. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It helps boost us in the charts and others to find us. Thank you for listening to Clean Integration, the Saluna podcast. And remember, computing is a better battery. See you next time.